Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is taking on the challenges of immigration law through the application of innovative technology. Amelie Vavrosky is the founder and CEO of Formally, a legal tech startup that uses accessible design to simplify and streamline immigration applications. The idea for the company was partly inspired by Amelie's own immigration experience as an international student at Brown University. She started Formally as a hackathon project geared towards helping refugees and asylum seekers immigrate into the U.S. Then, while a grad student at Stanford, Amelie further developed Formally, and the company officially launched in November of 2021. In recognition of the important work she's doing at Formally, Amelie was included in the Forbes 30 Under 30 list earlier this year. In our conversation, Amelie discusses competing in hackathons, the importance of multidisciplinary collaboration, Formally's approach to making legal work easier, and a surprising reaction to being included in the 30 under 30. It was a great conversation. Thank you for listening. Emily, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thanks for making the time. I'm doing great. Thanks so much, Stephen. Really appreciate it. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to see you. I assume I'm catching you in California? That's right. San Francisco. Uh, how are things in San Francisco? They just started to be sunny. They were really foggy this morning and a little bit rainy, but now we have sunshine and blue skies. Oh, that's great. Nothing more beautiful than San Francisco in a nice sunny day. I know, right? It really shines in the sun. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. Well, let's talk a little bit about you. You're the, you're the founder and CEO of Formally, which is a tech startup focused on the immigration space. That's right. Tell us a little bit about the origin story. I know it came out of a hackathon in Brown. That's right. Yeah, I came here as an immigrant, so that was definitely an important experience. And I was actually a policy major in college, so I focused on international relations and international policy. I didn't have anything to do with technology initially. So what got you to a hackathon? Well, I got really passionate about it. I thought it was so cool to build things. You know, I think as a policymaker, you get really good at dissecting and analyzing all sorts of issues and problems and things that don't work. And I thought it was really refreshing and exciting to work on building some solutions as well. So I think that's what drew me to the hackathon crew uh, and the crowd there. And trying to build something was was really exciting for me. Was this the first hackathon you went to or had you been to to others? No, I've been to a few others. I think I'd gone to Hack MIT before that, but that was about it, I think. So what was the problem you identified that you're trying to solve at the beginning? I know we'll talk about the iterations of the company and the expanded service offerings, but at the beginning, I take it you're focused on asylum seekers. That's right. Yeah. So the insight was really that for asylum seekers, it's almost impossible to understand how to navigate the asylum application process, right? And we took a look at the actual forms that you need to fill out if you're an asylum seeker. First of all, we noticed that they were only available in English. And then that the first question reads, check this box if you also want to apply for withholding of removal under the Convention Against Torture. For the most people, it's a really difficult question to answer, but especially if you don't speak English. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So I think that was the initial observation. But then I think there's a bigger observation here, which is that law overall to most people feels really foreign. It feels a little bit scary, right? It's, of of course, high stakes. And that if we think about sort of the experience of, of seeking counsel and working with counsel, 
really hasn't changed all that much over the past few years, right? I think a lot of things have changed around us, but the user experience and the experience of sort of working with council has remained relatively opaque. So I think for most users, it's kind of a black box. You don't really know what to expect, right? You don't really know how much it's supposed to cost, how long it's supposed to take, what your job is. Are you supposed to do anything? Is your lawyer doing everything? So I think there's a lot of lack of clarity in that space. And I think that's what we're really solving for with this platform is for the common consumer, helping them navigate legal processes with delightful experiences that are sometimes AI enabled, sometimes not, but it's really about understanding the user experience of interacting with legal counsel and navigating legal systems. What drew you initially to the asylum space? You you mentioned going through immigration, but I presume not through the asylum part of it specifically. Yeah, that interest goes back for me. I was really interested in refugees and asylum seekers. And I think understanding that in our modern world, people are going to be moving and there's a lot of displacement caused by conflict, by political regimes, but also climate change. I think there's sort of a lot of more refugees and asylum seekers in the world. And I was really interested in that. I also spent some time in the Middle East with refugees from Syria. So I think I was just really passionate about that space and, and helping people who are in those really, really tough situations, helping them out with some clarity and like a fair chance to basically make it to safety. So you won the hackathon, if I have this correctly, with the concept. That's right. You were an undergraduate at Brown at the time. So tell me how you went about bringing the company into existence. That took a lot longer than the hackathon. (laughs) So the hackathon was just the first thing we did. I think the hackathon really sort of initiated an idea of like, oh, could we turn this into a nonprofit, right? Could we help people? And could we get some grant funding? And lo and behold, we were able to get some, some grant funding to actually bring a first iteration to life. But it was always a side project, right? It was sort of something on the side that I was doing next to school. I enrolled in grad school shortly after that hackathon at Stanford, really working on cybersecurity, ethical AI, data privacy, right? So I was doing a lot of adjacent, like tech adjacent things. But it took a while to have that moment of like, oh, wow, helping asylum seekers is great. But there's a bigger problem here, right? Which is that it's not the only process that feels clunky and difficult for people to navigate and sort of looking at the entire immigration space. And now I think our bigger vision is actually even beyond immigration, looking at what makes a legal workflow or legal experience seamless and delightful for users and clear. So I think that's what we're really starting to solve. And that was a much bigger idea that sort of like formed the company much later on. But that took a while to percolate and take shape. Right. How do you go about finding a team? This was obviously your vision and your your passion. How do you go about finding a team that shares that vision and passion, which is what I assume you've done? I've always loved working like in cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary teams, right? So both at Brown and at Stanford, I always enjoyed taking classes in totally different areas, right? So taking CS classes as a policy major or getting into cybersecurity and hacking at Stanford, right? Like those are things I enjoy. And I think that's how you meet people from different disciplines. And that's how I met a lot of people who sort of had the software engineering talent. And then it's all about understanding like, is there a shared vision? Most software engineers, I think, that I meet at least, are really passionate about making a difference, right? Making an impact in the world and building something meaningful. So those things are really, really helpful when you're trying to build a team is to not be afraid to talk to people who 
come from a different academic discipline and try to see the world through their eyes and their perspective, which is actually very similar to what I went to school for, which is like diplomacy, right? I think diplomacy and international relations is actually all about that. It's being able to empathize and communicate across cultures and differences and, and different viewpoints. And I think academic perspectives are just like that. You just need to be able to do that. So when I build my team, I try to be empathetic to the engineers, right? It's not just like, can I find somebody, like, can I find a coder, right? I think a lot of non-technical founders sort of approach it like, I just, I just need somebody to make the tech. But I think it, it goes way beyond that. You need to be like, I'm looking for team members. I'm looking for somebody who has expertise in something that I don't. And the way I hire is I always try to hire somebody who's better at something than I am, right? So I think having humility and empathy for the hard work that goes into building a product of being an engineer and designing a product, I think has allowed me to build a really great team where there's a lot of mutual appreciation and respect for the work that we do. That's awesome. So you had experience as an immigrant yourself coming from Austria, if I have that correct? That's right. Yeah. And you fell in love with technology and certainly some of the issues associated with the application of technology that We'll talk about here in a little bit. Did you pick a workflow in a technical space populated by lawyers? What lessons did you learn from that? What what surprised you as you got into that? And were there moments where you go, they can't really do it this way? (laughs) Yeah, of course. That happens a lot to me, right? But I think having a beginner's mindset is actually helpful in a lot of situations, right? Like I don't really have an ego or opinions of of how things should be necessarily. I think I try to understand the why behind anything, right? Like I try to understand like, why is it being done in a certain way? And just like ask a lot of questions. And I think I'm kind of an insatiably curious person. I think that's actually what I like most about being a founder and and, and building technologies. I I love to learn new things, whether those are small or, or big insights, but it allows me to focus entirely on our users instead of what I think the ideal experience is. So that's how we like approach product design and you know product thinking as a company is to just be curious about our users' experience and keep asking for like why is it being done a certain way? What would an ideal experience look like? And when you design products and technology, you often have to look beyond what people say the problem is, right? You have to look at it holistically and really try to understand the system as a whole and then try to design solutions around that. And it's not obvious, but it's something I love doing. And I think those are the hurdles and the challenges, but those are also the things that excite me the most is getting to that insight and getting to better from a system that currently has some challenges. One of the things that formally does, if, I, if I'm correct, and correct me if I'm, I've got this wrong, is you're automating workflows. You're taking information from foreign nationals or, or from... HR departments or from lawyers, you've got three distinct client bases, if I can use that term, but you're automating workflows. And if I know, if I know lawyers, and after several decades, I suspect I, I know them a little bit, there is no one precise workflow that every lawyer follows. Yet I would presume that the application of technology is, is easier around a standardized workflow with as little variation built into it as, as is possible. Do I have that that sort of dichotomy correct? And if so, how do you how do you work through that as you build out your product? Yeah. 
That's a great question. So I think first it might it might actually be helpful to sort of you know give a slightly more technical or nerdier description of what our platform actually does, which is that at its core, we're building a secure portable data platform that has delightful AI-enabled workflows built on top of it. And I think that's the workflow automation piece that you're speaking to. And right now, all of our workflows are immigration-related workflows. So a workflow might be an H-1B or an L-1A or an asylum application. So what we do is we build good defaults. And I think that comes from an insight that law firms and lawyers don't really have the time or the interest or the like know-how of architecting great workflows that are client-friendly, right? Like that's not necessarily worth their time to figure out the perfect user experience. And it takes a lot of time and it's it's just a time sink, right? Like if you want to do that for all of your clients and all of your workflows and you want to build everything from scratch, I think that's that's just such a time sink that makes means that you have to spend so much time customizing it and getting it right. So we're like, what if we built really good defaults, right? That we know clients love, that we know like resonate with the end user. And then we let you customize them, right? We like you tinker with them. So that's sort of how we see it. It's like, this is a good default template, but it's not the end all be all. And we're definitely not the experts on the legal side, right? So what we can do as a platform is help law firms create delightful user experiences that we know resonate with the consumers. And that could be either the company consumer, like the corporate consumer, corporate client, or the individual. And I think that's what we're good at. We're like that interface, right? Um, I think an analogy in finance might be Mercury does that for banks, right? Like there's some banks underneath Mercury, but Mercury is that user experience platform. That's kind of what we do. And then there's a really cool portable data aspect and we should talk about that more. But, you know, I think that's the hidden secret about the Formula platform. But in terms of telling lawyers how to do their work and automating their workflows, <laughs> we definitely had some learnings there. You know, initially we built some like lawyer facing tasks into the platform because our clients told us, hey, we would love if you just told us what needs to be done on a particular case. And of course we got it wrong, right? We got it completely wrong and we had to completely scrap that project. It was like completely off base. And it makes sense, right? Because we're not the experts, right? Lawyers are the actual experts and they know how to structure their own workflows and their own work and how to get to great. And that expertise is something that clients very much appreciate. So we completely got rid of it. And instead, how we approach it now is to just give lawyers all the data, all the information, all the documentation in as clear and compact a way as possible. So they know exactly what's missing. And so they can get to work on the actual legal matters that need to be handled, right? And I think that legal expertise is invaluable and something that technology will not replace, uh, at least not anytime soon. So what's the role? You've got three client personas here, the lawyer, the corporation, and the foreign national. What's the role of going towards the unauthorized practice of law, which I know you're formally is not engaged in the practice of law? How did how do the foreign nationals interact with lawyers? Is it if they sign in the system, are they assigned a lawyer? Can they do it on their own? How do you work through that regulatory piece? So the way it works is very much like Carta. I'm sure you're familiar with Carta as a platform. On Carta, I as a founder can sign up to manage my cap table. And then I can sort of invite my law firm and my VCs to the platform and we can collaborate and sort of do our tasks that we need to do on the platform, right? It's similar informally. So as an individual, you can start off a case. You can sort of find out like what you might be eligible for. 
but you will need a lawyer at some point. So then you have two options. You can either bring your own lawyer, right? So you can sort of invite them to formally and collaborate with them that way, or you can find somebody who's already on the platform. So those are the two options, but either way, we don't really, obviously we can't fee share with law firms. So this is just about helping somebody find counsel if they don't know who counsel might be yet. So it's, I think our law firm clients appreciate it because it sends some additional leads and we don't charge for any of that because we don't feature. And it's just like, if you have access to the formerly platform, it's sort of a nice thing that's given to you in addition to that. But you can also bring your own law firm, no problem. And you can invite your company and your employer to collaborate with you. But it's really a collaboration platform in that way. So yeah, we don't touch any of it. You can't do it on your own. But what we do deliver is that seamless workflow experience. And we're definitely not like a low cost alternative. So I don't want to create that into like illusion either, right? I think the way we see our product is that it's like a premium, delightful technology solution combined with incredible, knowledgeable counsel. And that's why we don't really tap into the legal advice giving. Like you always have counsel that actually does the legal advice giving. So what differentiates you in the marketplace? Is it this premium? Is it the service levels you just described? Is it the technology? Maybe you don't have any competitors in the marketplace to do what you do. I think we have a large competitive ecosystem. You know, I think that there is a lot of competitors sort of on the case management side. I think there's certainly competition on the sort of like DIY legal experience platform, right? Like there's all sorts of tools like Clerky might be an example. And then there's actually, I think, also competitors in the sort of identity space, right? Like managing personal data and information and documentation. I think that the way we bring it together in the sort of connective tissue between law firm and client where data is portable and where we have these great AI-enabled experience, like AI-enabled experiences, I think that that's unique. And the AI functionality we're building is constantly evolving. And it's a pretty exciting area. And it's definitely where we're getting the most excitement from our law firm customers is around the new AI functionality we're launching. So there's a lot of interesting things coming there as well. And I think that's another differentiator for us. It's just like constantly innovating on the AI functionality, especially when it leads to great user experience. Let's stay on that theme a little bit. Then I want to come back to the portable data point you raised before. If you can sort of share an example of kind of functionality that these advances in generative AI are bringing to your product. You said it's exciting, and I'm sure it is. Give us an example of what you're talking about. Yeah. So I don't know, Stephen, about your clients, but I've been a client and I have a folder on my desktop that says like immigration stuff. And that folder is not a pretty place. You know, it's messy. Things aren't labeled correctly. Sometimes they're bad screenshots. You know, it's not, it's not a great, it's not a great place. We don't like the immigration stuff folder. It's not structured data. No, it's not. <laughs> and, and are your clients like that too? Or like, do you know clients that are like that? No, possibly. It's, uh, possibly. You know, yeah. Possibly. Well, yeah. I may know a so few maybe clients it's just like me. that. It might just be me. No, I don't, I don't think it's just you. <laughs> Um, so here is a really cool functionality, which is called Magic Docs. And we haven't actually launched it publicly yet, but our beta customers have access to it, which is a functionality where you can sort of like drag and drop a big folder of data and documents. And what we can do is we can actually identify what type of document it is, check it off a list of requested documents automatically, right? Even if it was completely mislabeled, we can do that. And then in addition, we can pull out 
all of the data keys. And a data key would be like a first name that would be a data key. So we can pull those out. So you don't have to do any data entry. And then we can even cross check those data keys against each other. So we can say like, oh, your first name on your passport is different than on your birth certificate. So that's pretty cool. And then here's the last thing that we do, which is we actually tell you where it came from. So it's actually human supervised AI. So you don't have to worry about it. It actually helps you improve accuracy. And because it has that source data, it's much more transparent. So you don't have to worry about hallucinations. So I think that's a really cool feature. Uh, And that's the thing that people are really excited about. So we're expanding on that. And that's sort of an exciting space that we've entered. And we've been testing that since March. And people really love it. So I think it's a really exciting piece of IP that we got there. Yeah, that's really cool. That's awesome. So talk to us a little bit about the portable data component. You mentioned it a a couple of times. What do you mean by that? And talk a little bit about how that fits into Formly's mission. Yeah, I'm such a nerd on this, right? Like I really care about privacy. I really care about data security. I think I told you I kind of picked up a white hat security researcher, hacking hobby. I don't hack anyone, but I like to do security research and a lot of work on this at Stanford. And I love it. I think it's so cool and so much fun. But I also think that there's a shift in terms of how consumers and companies are looking at their data. Companies, for instance, aren't so comfortable commingling their corporate data with employee data. That's something we're hearing from companies, right? They want to make sure that those records are separate and encrypted individually. Right now, in most law firms, they're commingled. And like, here's a concept from cybersecurity, which is you can actually, like the way most things, like most breaches happen is that somebody clicks a phishing email and then you do something, it's called a cyber kill chain, right? You escalate privilege. So you try to get admin access to something and try like, you know, get it. So if everything lives in like a shared drive, oops, right? Then all your client data is exposed and that's not great. So security is important. And then here's another insight, which is like, Modern consumer also wants to know, like, where did my data go? Who has access to it? Especially if it's important, personal, identifiable information, right? Called PII. So I want to know who did I share my social security number with? Where did it go? And then at the end of it, I want it to actually belong to me, right? Like I, I lend it to my law firm to do legal work, but it actually belongs to me. So as a law firm, you get to retain sort of records of your client interactions, but the actual data itself belongs to the individual. And that is true if you're an individual moving from one law firm to the next, say like you switch employers and you have to take your record with you. So you can do that as an individual. You can also do that if you are a company, right? So you can actually take your data with you as well. I think that's really powerful. And I think it's a little futuristic because I don't think a lot of people are paying attention to it right now. But if you ask me what's going to be big over the next few years, like privacy regulation is coming and people are going to be a lot more aware of where their data goes and how it's handled. And I think that is a huge trend that we're tapping into with the secure portable data functionality that I'm talking to you about. And that's the actual uh, reason we have like defensibility. And here's the last cool thing that I'm going to tell you about portable data, which is once we have your data informally, we actually have all what's called metadata, right? So we have data that has like connectivity around it, right? So we know like this is your first name and your spouse's name is this and your passport's expiring then, right? Like we have sort of like metadata for each data. Here's something really cool. You can say, hey, we noticed you applied for asylum based on these. Like, we actually think that you're also eligible for an employment authorization and a fee waiver. We used all your existing data to fill it out for you. Do you want to send it to your attorney for review? And it can actually come from the law firm, right? We can make it look like that advice or that like insight comes from the law firm. But here's why this is so cool. And I'm a policy nerd. 
it actually helps people structurally overcome bureaucratic hurdles and barriers in a way that isn't possible right now. I think that's really cool because you can put sort of like layers of knowledge and decision-making on top of it. And if you have access to the direct consumer, you can do that and you can help people navigate legal systems much more effectively. And I think that's a win. I think that's a huge win. And as somebody who loves this as a policy challenge, that gives me energy. Yeah, I can see that. That's awesome. That's an incredible functionality and an amazing insight. Is that where you see the, the company going over the next few years, expanding in that that way as opposed to limiting yourself to immigration? A hundred percent. And I think that's always been the goal. But right now, our job is to do something for a specific audience and to do it really, really well. So we don't want to be nothing to everyone, right? We want to make sure that we solve a real consumer need. So that's why we want to stay so close to our initial use case. That being said, we're already getting a lot of requests for this sort of functionality in other areas of the law, right, that feel challenging. And I think especially corporate clients are really, really thirsting for that type of solution because their compliance departments are actually starting to be really aware of cyber threat and sort of the risks that come with additional systems. So that's sort of where we're seeing it going. And we're seeing law firms that adopt the technology have a higher chance winning RFPs, for instance, right, with those clients that are asking questions about security, questions about how are you leveraging AI. So I think there's a huge opportunity for law firms to pick up like technology that positions them well in terms of their security and data plans for the long run and not just for the sort of like short term here and now, let's put it all in a shared drive. I think that that's going to go away um, over the next few years. And the, on the law firm sector that you target, there's obviously gradations within. It's a very segmented sector of, of the industry. Big law firms, solo practitioners, mid-sized law firms, geographically focused, internationally focused. Do you have a particular sweet spot for the company? I think that any law firm that has a lot of corporate clients, that's like bigger than, say, 10 attorneys, is a really good fit for us. We've also worked with smaller firms. I mean, the truth is we're still a really small company, so we're going to have to see where there's the most excitement for the product. We are sort of, you know, subject to the market demand in a way. But I'm excited. Honestly, I'm excited to explore it with firms of different sizes to see how broadly this product can work for law firms. But yeah, we've experimented. We've had like solo practitioners in our betas and we've had like 200 person law firms in our beta. So I think we're excited to work with different size law firms and see who's most excited to adopt this. But right now our insight is that law firms that have a lot of corporate clients, that those corporate clients are actually the ones who are most demanding a different way to sort of interact with their law firm. Cool. I know we're bumping up against our time, but I, I don't want to let you go without congratulating you on being one of the Forbes 30 under 30 in social impact. Oh, thank you. That's that's very cool. What was your reaction when you learned of that? Because it's a it's a great honor you were in with some really incredible people. Do you want to know what my honest reaction was? <laughs> Stephen, yeah, I haven't I shared this ever. This is the first time. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is for sure a phishing email. <laughs> Oh, you, you, you cybersecurity experts. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, know. Like, I was texting my partner and I was like, do you think I should open it? Is it a phishing email? Um, and then I saw like other people posting it. <laughs> I was pretty sure it was a phishing email. Oh, my God. You didn't click on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so that was my honest reaction. Well, that had to make your data security people happy. <laughs> I think so. I think so. I think my Stanford professors would have been happy about that reaction. But I mean, it was, it's a huge honor and I'm, I'm very grateful to have been selected. Um, but yeah, that was my first reaction. And it's, it's funny, I've never shared that with anyone, <laughs> but that was my very first reaction. <laughs> Oh, that's hysterical. Last sort of question for you. I know that you do some work with the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. Yes. Were you talking about artificial intelligence in, in the access to justice space, which is a particular interest of mine. We've had a number of guests on trying to apply technology to the A to J problem. Can you talk just a little bit about the work you're doing and sort of where you see that going? I, I can see how it's related to the work you're doing with formal so look, I think we're experiencing a special moment with AI, and I know other guests have said this too, right? But I think we're sort of, especially in the legal field, needing to ask ourselves, like, what is this tool? How can we use it? Where does it make sense? And where does it not make so much sense to use AI? So one of the things that I've been working on is actually an ethics guidelines framework, right? Like, how do we think about some guidelines that should govern the ethical use of AI in the legal field? We're actually cooking up something interesting there. So, so stay tuned. I'm, we might have an announcement around that soon. But I think that right now there's a need to sort of really reflect on like what AI is good at and what it's not good at, right? And when people say AI right now, they're mostly talking about large language models, right? And large language models are not self-reflective. So you can't ask them like, why did you say this thing? And I think the reason that matters for access to justice is because I've heard sort of two like starkly contrasted perspectives on AI for A to J. One is like, it's really dangerous and we should never use AI for individuals without counsel, for instance. And then the other one is like, we should just give this like underprivileged people chat GPT and it'll solve most of their legal needs. I disagree with that. I disagree with both of those standpoints. And I think saying like, oh, we want AI, it's like saying like, we want transportation. And then you go to the car dealership and they sell you a car and you go and drive it straight into a lake. It's because you asked the wrong questions, right? <laughs> so... In the A to J space, I think you can do a lot in terms of helping people navigate legal systems more effectively, but something it really can't do is give legal advice because it'll confidently tell you something that's statistically probable, but not vetted. And, and here's where it actually, like, I want to drive home the point, which is like for folks who really need legal services, those folks tend to be also least likely to be able to vet the information that a large language model very confidently outputs. And I think that's a really big risk. And I think we need to be really, really thoughtful about how we frame and deploy that because the, the consequences could be really, really severe, right? And we want to be really thoughtful about how we roll it out. So I'm actually working on a framework for law firms and lawyers to think through how to assess you know, the ethics and the value of an AI tool. So I'll keep you posted as we sort of work through that. But that's sort of the work I've been doing there is like thinking through AI for whom, in what use cases, how can we leverage it, where does it make sense, and where does it not make sense? And I think those are important questions to answer before we sort of do something that, that could negatively impact a community that's already struggling. No, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. Sounds like we're going to have to have you back on the show to talk about that once you, uh, <laughs> once you announce. 100%. Yeah, that'd be great. I'm, I'm excited to keep you posted there. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Well, Amelie, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. I know as a CEO of a startup, you're juggling a million things, and I appreciate you making some time for us today. Thank you. Of course. Thanks so much, Stephen. This was really fun. 
Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.